This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today we're in the late 1700s and early 1800s as Europe is ravaged by war. Five key wars, in fact, involving France and changing coalitions from Britain, modern day Germany, Belgium, Austria, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, Sweden, Turkey, and Russia. In total, 23 years of conflict, during which it's estimated between 5 and 7 million people died. These were the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic War, named after Frenchman, military general, and self-appointed emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was famously defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium in 1815, making the Anglo-Irish Duke of Wellington a national hero. But despite these conflicts being decidedly European, the impact of the wars was far-reaching around the world, and Britain was at risk of invasion. And it's Napoleon's impact on England that we're looking at today. Joining us to discuss this are... Josephine Oxley, Keeper of the Wellington Collection at Apsley House and Wellington Arch. Paul Patterson, Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage. Hello to you both. Now, before we talk about the remains of English heritage landmarks from the Napoleonic period and the artworks bearing his likeness, let's get to know the man first. Paul, am I right in thinking that Napoleon wasn't born into power and that he wasn't even born in France? Yeah, that's correct. He was actually born at a place called Ajaccio, which is in the Mediterranean island of Corsica, in 1769. He was of Corsican ancestry, but the Bonaparte had actually come from what we now know as Italy, northwestern Italy, around the provinces of Liguria and Tuscany, very close to Genoa, in fact. So technically, he was Corsican. His, his mother and father were born in Corsica, but his ancestry was northwest Italian. However, he was born a French subject because effectively the island had been controlled by the Republic of Genoa till about 1761 when they had been expelled by a Corsican patriot movement. But in 1768, France bought Corsica from the Genoese. And in 1769, the very year of Napoleon's birth, the French defeated the Corsican patriots and effectively were in full control of the island. Napoleon was born just afterwards. And so I suppose technically, legally, he was French in a strange kind of roundabout way. Yes, and yet had been born onto an island that had just been snatched away from the native inhabitants, so to speak. So in some respects, his destiny was uh, kind of apposite, wasn't it, really? (laughs) That he spent his entire life trying to snatch territory. Indeed. And as we shall see in his early life, he was something of a Corsican patriot, but then switched sides in a sense because he realized that his interests lay elsewhere in the the great country of France rather than the small island of Corsica. Is the Bonaparte name actually French? Does it have a French uh, root or is it more of an Italian root? It's Italian and in in fact it's Buonaparte really. That's how it's supposed to be pronounced. Ah. So it's just been well presumably anglicized to Bonaparte but it's certainly not a French name. Well, Josephine, can you tell us a bit more about what he was like as an adult, as a man? Because I understand he wasn't very tall. 
Well, uh, well, there's always a bit of debate about that and people make a lot about it, but it just kind of shows you how effective British propaganda was because he was always portrayed as this tiny little man, but different reports have different sizes, anything between five foot three and five foot five. Five foot five, five foot six wasn't particularly small for that period. But I think he was clever. He was ambitious and he was also ruthless. But he also had the knack of being in the right place at the right time. I think it's really hard not to be impressed by his career, considering what we've just heard about where he came from and what he was born into, this very complex place, Corsica. But he also makes mistakes. You know, he's not perfect. He suffers defeats. So I don't think we should see him as some kind of superhuman. And there are thousands of surviving letters that show Napoleon to be witty and charming and clever and well-read. But he was really someone who was supremely ambitious for himself and for his family. The family element is important because he pretty much just places all his siblings in positions of power around Europe, whether they were qualified to take over these roles or not. He places them there. It does cause him a lot of disquiet and problems with some of his siblings, but his family is really important to him. I think it's the scope of his ambitions that perhaps make him different to other military leaders. And I'm sure Paul will expand on that. But this, in a way, also caused his downfall because there was just so so much huge ambition. Mm. And then to get to the other side of Napoleon, which he can do through his letters, especially the letters when he's a young man and he's first courting Josephine, who is really compared to him, She's experienced and worldly, and he comes over in those letters as being quite naive and vulnerable and like a lovesick boy, really. (laughs) But he also appears to be, when he's younger, very driven and almost sort of puritanical when he's at military school. He does make friends, but he's not wildly popular because he has this Corsican heritage. Although he doesn't come from a poor background, he's not an aristocrat by any manner of means, and he is looked down upon by his French comrades at military academy. Mm. So I think that that sort of does make him to be quite a complex character. I suppose like all big figures in history, he's not one thing or another. He, he's made up of so many different things. He's a very, very complex figure. I'm seeing a lot of character traits there that would uh, lend themselves to sort of um, a lack of confidence, perhaps, and wanting to assert one's power, even if one isn't particularly tall, for example. And yeah. you know, the fact that he's a, sort of an, an outsider, an, an étranger, as they might say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important factor. But then on the other hand, don't overplay that too much because he's very clever and, you know, and he is admired. And I think that there is no black and white picture with Napoleon. And I think often people make a mistake of trying to put him in one box or another. And I don't Mm. think you can. It's too complex for that. I think so. And I think every historical figure really has a complex legacy. Every famous person that we hear about in obituaries today, every human is a a very complex person. So yes, let's talk about how he rose through the ranks to become French emperor. Paul, you've got a bit more detail on that. Yeah, I'd just like to reinforce what Josephine said, though, because he was a complex character, but in some ways he's supremely confident. So it's a bit of a paradox, really. Mm. You know, he has this 
perhaps has this little bit of hassle in his early life when he was at military college at being an outsider. But in terms of his abilities, he was supremely confident in them. And he showed that time and time again. Hmm. His rise to power was actually quite rapid. It was a blend of raw ability, confidence, and actually the opportunity that the times afforded. I mean, the French Revolution was in 1789. Placed the whole of France in turmoil and the established order was turned absolutely upside down. There's then a kind of mutual distrust which emerges between the new French Republican regime and the surrounding European monarchies. And it caused rising tensions such that by about 1792, everything was primed for war. And eventually the French Republic declared war on its neighbors, Austria and Prussia. And actually this was the start of a series of conflicts involving a number of coalitions against France with various countries which continued until 1802. And that's what we call the French Revolutionary Wars. Just to set this in context, can you tell us when all the lopping of heads via guillotines took place? Well, it's begun in 1789 and it's still going on. And in fact, the king, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are actually guillotined in January 1793. Napoleon had been in Paris the previous year and he'd witnessed the storming of the Tuileries Palace when the French royal family were taken prisoner and their guards were all massacred. Mm. So he, he witnessed these events and he was very much part of them. This execution of the King and Queen of France in one sense was the thing that eventually brought Britain into the war. And in the late summer and autumn, a combined British and Spanish force took over the important arsenal and port of Toulon in Southern France, where a pocket of French royalists who were holding out against the Republican government were being besieged by a Republican French force. And into this arena, the young Napoleon Bonaparte, who is a 24-year-old captain of artillery, was actually kind of imposed on the commander of the French siege force because he had connections in Paris. However, Napoleon proves to be extraordinarily energetic and quite brilliant, actually. And it was largely through his efforts, even as a junior officer, that important parts of the defences of Toulon are actually taken. And he establishes artillery cannon in positions which are dominating the town and the harbour. So much so that the British and Spanish force has to evacuate the town, which then surrendered to the Republic. So his reward for this energetic and decisive role in the siege is he suddenly finds himself going from a junior officer to a brigadier general within weeks. By December 1793, he's well on his way and very shortly after was appointed to command the French artillery in the army fighting in Italy. So it's a lightning promotion, actually. And he spends the next two to three years actually in Italy, where the French are fighting the Austrians and their allies who are part of this large coalition that's fighting against France. And by 1797, he had made such an impact in strategy uh, and the way he planned military campaigns that he's actually promoted to command the whole French army in Italy. And that is indeed a meteoric rise. This is 1797 when effectively the Austrian army was defeated and the coalition forces fighting the French were pushed out of northern Italy. 
And it was a very substantial effort in bringing an end the first phase of this revolutionary war. Can you describe the map if people are imagining it in their heads or perhaps they're going to go and open a tab on their computer or smartphone or yeah. tablet or something? What is the map looking at like at this stage in 1797? The French are attacking on several fronts. One of the fronts they're attacking is there was a large part of Central and Eastern Europe that was under the command of the Austrians. It was the remnant of the what they call the Holy Roman Empire. And so the French are pushing into disputed territory, which is held by the Austrians in what we would regard as the northern part of Italy, although Italy doesn't itself exist at this time. They're also pushing into the Low Countries. They're fighting in Belgium and Holland. And by 1795, they've effectively overrun the Low Countries. Wow. Quite reminiscent of what goes on in the uh, 20th century with Germany, really. This pushing out into space to occupy it. Yes, basically. It's, in a sense, it's, it's almost becoming an imperial project already, though technically it isn't. This is the French Republic fighting its opposite numbers, those who oppose what has happened in France, and their aim is to restore the French monarchy. Right. So it's, in a sense, it's a, it's a war of survival, but the French are winning it. So, so it's a republican versus uh, monarchistic kind of war, really? In a sense, it is, yes. That is the end game as far as both sides are concerned. Mm. Now, Josephine, let's talk about the British government and how this news was received back on our sceptre dial. Did the monarchy fear that revolution in the style of the French with guillotines and lopped off heads arrive in England? Yeah, there were massive fears throughout the 1790s in Britain. And William Pitt and his government, and in fact, George III, were all concerned about the growth of these revolutionary ideas. It's referred to as the revolutionary controversy here. There were massive repercussions. I mean, the government in the 1790s prosecuted a whole raft of high-profile court cases, which involve very well-known radical reformers. And that threat of revolution was taken really seriously by the government. To counter that, on the other side of the spectrum, the government really encouraged the formation of these loyalist societies to sort of counter the influence of these Jacobin tendencies. And the biggest society, the loyalist society that was formed at that time, was called the Association for the Preservation of Liberty and Property Against the Republicans and the Levellers, which was founded by a man called John Reeves. It was all tied up, of course. The whole loyalty question was very much tied up with loyalty to the crown, which was mm. really what they were frightened about, was this new and very revolutionary idea of executing a monarch. I mean, that had ripple effects throughout the whole of Europe. Mm. But I think British society... I think it's hard to understand now how much effect the French Revolution had. I mean, all over the country, there were these revolutionary societies. Often they had to meet in secret. The government had a whole network of spies all over the country trying to root out these people. Yeah. I mean, it was big. It was a big problem. And coupled with that, there were several years where harvests were bad. So there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of starvation which, of course, in turn gave radical ideas a little bit of a root in certain parts of society. Mm. And this is all tied up at the same time as someone like Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, writing. So it's a very unsettling time, the 1790s, for Britain. And they definitely thought 
that there was going to be either a revolution led by their own people or there was going to be an invasion by the French. And another factor to understand as well is the importance of the Irish in this because there had already been in 1796 a French fleet had managed to sort of sneak by the Royal Navy and get into Bantry Bay in Cork. And there were a lot of Irish radicals who were very keen to support the French. And that would have given the French a sort of backdoor into Britain. So it was a real time of tumult in British politics. So fighting a, a sort of a war on multiple fronts, really, without conflict actually breaking out in a way. Those tensions yeah, were really riding high in very, very many uh, areas. Absolutely. And it was a real war of ideas. You know, there's a great cultural war. It really is a time of people looking to someone like Napoleon, who was seen initially as a rather libertarian character, which we would find quite amusing now. Mm. But he was seen as the leader of this sort of revolutionary movement. So he was much admired by some people in Britain. He wasn't completely disliked. But, you know, as we'll see, as you get towards 1803, when Napoleon is the out-and-out victor in Europe, then only turns his sights to Britain, we'll see then that there's another great wave, and that is of loyalism, of propaganda against the French, and that the whole sort of thing starts to turn slowly away from revolutionary ideas, back to where our ideas often are, which is sort of fighting the French. Yes, and maintaining the status quo. It sounds very much like yeah. it was a, uh, a paradigm shift, a massive jolt. We talked about Napoleon's um, lightning jump up the ranks, and this was another bolt from the blue, really, this whole idea of a revolution where one man yeah. can, can lead an entire empire. It was, of course, you know, and there had been revolutionary ideas, of course, you know, because you had the American Revolutionary Wars. So you had all those kind of ideas were fermenting, weren't they? Mm. And as we, you know, know, when we talk about what happened at the end of Napoleon's career with the defeat at Waterloo, you know, the reason why that's so important for the whole of Europe is that it reestablishes the old order. You yes. know, and, th and that's the important thing for the governments and for the monarchies of Europe to re-establish the old order and get rid of that tumultuous time of Napoleonic war. Just before we continue, you mentioned a writer called Thomas Paine. How significant was he at this time? Well, I mean, he was significant. I suppose he is more admired as a revolutionary in America than he is here. But I think that his influence was at the time, more acceptable, I think, to the American revolutionary ideas. But, you know, you had that whole question of someone like Edmund Burke, who, who wrote against the French Revolution, then Thomas Paine, who was very much for the rights of man. This was very much his manifesto. So these ideas were really fermenting at the time. And it's politically, the 1790s is a really interesting time in British history. Mm. Both these chaps, British or Englishmen? Well, Burke was actually Irish, but yeah, but it, he's seen as British, yeah. Right. Paul, so let's talk about how Britain viewed France during these French Revolutionary Wars of 1792 to 1802. It's a decade of conflict. Josephine touched on the sort of issue of the propaganda war developing and keep a lid on anything boiling over. Can you talk a bit more about how Britain viewed France during this period? 
just again reinforcing what Josephine said that there was a this radical movement in politics, especially in the early 1790s. And Tom Paine actually was one of those who was put on trial. And he was one of the few that was found guilty. Most of them were acquitted. But these trials actually had the effect by about 1795 of, of effectively stifling the opposition because the government had made it clear what their intention was and they were going to stamp it out. It didn't stamp it out altogether, but I think what happened is that people acquiesced and they went along with the war. So the degree of radicalism in Britain in the 1790s is disputed, but it may well have been more prevalent than we actually know. Mm. But to go back to your question about how did Britain view France in the French Revolutionary Wars, well, the answer is quite simple. I mean, Josephine's answer actually says most of it because it was a political thing, really. But just to take the broader view, if you like, Britain and France were actually long-standing enemies since the Middle Ages, in fact. They had fought several fierce wars through the 18th century and even the proxy war, the French backing of the Americans in the War of Independence, had actually swung the balance against Britain. Mm. And that had only ended in the 1780s. So it's not long before these series of events that we're talking about. But it had also effectively almost bankrupted France and France itself had gained not very much. So France and Britain were rivals. They were also rivals in the colonies, notably in India, in Canada and North America. But effectively, Britain's attitude to the French Revolutionary Wars is that it's part of a long-standing policy. And that was... Britain didn't really want to get involved in continental Europe. It was costly, it was nasty, it was complicated. But what they wanted to do throughout the 18th century and into the 19th century was to prevent French domination of Europe. They wanted through political or if necessary war means to ensure that French domination didn't go across the whole of Europe. Because actually what Britain wanted to do was to concentrate on trade and colonial expansion. That's where it wanted to put its efforts. So British foreign policy was geared around that whole idea of global expansion and not getting bogged down in costly, nasty wars in Central Europe. And so the government attitude is that this is actually a necessary war. That's why they had such a strong reaction to the idea of radicalism in the country. And that's why they put tremendous efforts from about 1794 onwards into preparations for war and to continue the war. Uh, things like, you know, there's a massive volunteer movement. Josephine mentioned the loyalist movement. Well, there's also a military volunteer movement as well, which slowly gains traction from about 1795, which is the time that France had annexed the Low Countries. And so they were just across the water. And so from this time, there's actually a lot of work going on in the country to prepare defences long before the Napoleonic threat became apparent, you know, from about 1803. Yeah, we'll talk about those defences um, soon. But um, I understand that the uh, French Revolutionary Wars were stopped in their tracks by the Treaty of Amiens in uh, 1802. Can you tell us what that treaty did, albeit temporarily? Well, it comes at the end of a period where French arms are in the ascendancy, effectively and they've all but defeated the coalition, the second great coalition against them. The first one had come to an end in 1797, but another one had been formed with a number of states, including Britain, Austria, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, Portugal, various German states, Sweden, all of them against France, who did actually have the support of Spain. So this second coalition had fought between 1798 and 1802, 
and France again was in the ascendant. But by this date, everybody's just about had enough. This is a long period of very bitter, very bloody war that absorbed massive amounts of the economic resources of most of the European countries. Mm. And everybody was pretty tired of the whole thing. So the treaty negotiated at Amiens was something of a compromise. And I don't really think that anybody expected that it was really, really going to last. It was something of a breathing space. So some people get something out of it. So French domination of Europe was kind of assured, really. They were recognized. The Republic was recognized. That was the important thing. Ah. And also the monarchy was not restored, which was one of the stated war aims of the coalition against them. So they're winning, yeah? Yeah. They retain all of the territory. Yeah, they'd retain all the countries, all the territory that they'd gained, large parts of Northern Italy and the Low Countries, as I mentioned. So they have territorial expansion as well, and they're beginning to export their Republican ideals and the way of organizing government to these new territories. So that is all ratified. They can carry on with that. And then Britain lost a few things. It had to return some of the colonies, for instance, the Cape Colony in South Africa. It had to return to the Dutch, who were now effectively a French client state. They were apparently instructed to withdraw their forces from Egypt and Malta. But we also had a few gains as well. We gained Ceylon, bizarrely, from the Dutch. And Spain agreed to British rule of Trinidad, which was at this time, obviously an important colony in the West Indies. And Gibraltar was was accepted as British as well. So there were territorial wins on both sides, but actually the main winner was France because it was finally acknowledged as a, a central power in Europe. And there were five coalitions throughout this period, weren't there, is that right? Well, there were two up to this time, yeah. and then actually there were another four afterwards until right. Six the, the, the end until the yeah. end in, in 1815. So this Treaty of Amiens, it's a bit of a paper tiger, actually. And in truth, not much of the above, the things I've just mentioned, really happened. It was an interlude. It opened Europe up again to relatively normal life, at least for a while. And it allowed various states to begin to recover and rebuild their economies to reorganize and to realign. How many years of peace did we uh, see across Europe from 1802 then before the next uh, chapter? uh, Not long. It was about 14 months. But actually actually during that time, things were happening that were signing the death knell for the treaty. For instance, the French took advantage of a rising in Switzerland to annex Switzerland, which was a very provocative act indeed. And Britain didn't evacuate Egypt, Malta, or the Cape Colony, for instance. And so there was bad faith on both sides. And everybody knew war was going to start again at some point. Let's talk about then how Britain faced this risk of invasion from Napoleonic France. How did that sort of come to pass? Basically, Britain declared war on France early in 1803, anticipating that it was going to happen anyway. And in fact, preparations for invasion had been going on long before that. All through the 1790s, there were things done in the country to prepare for the eventuality of invasion. For instance, there was a a huge movement to raise an army in England because the actual regular army was actually quite small. And so there was a huge volunteer and militia movement to raise extra troops to be able to face invasion. There were coastal gun batteries built all around the coast in harbours, 
at vulnerable beaches. There was a massive program of building barracks for soldiers all around the country too. In some instances, there were huge new defences built. One good example is Dover Castle, which was at that time an ageing medieval fortress. Between 1793 and the Peace of Amiens, it was transformed with huge expenditure mm. into a, mass, a massive fortress to protect the entrance to England through the port of Dover. So preparations had been going on long before peace broke down in 1803. But of course, things had been going on during the peace as well. Plans were being made by both sides. And when war comes again, those preparations effectively continue. Can we talk about some of the actual coastal defences that were installed? I understand that there were these things called Martello Towers. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us where those Martello Towers were on the coast? These are small fortifications. They're effectively small towers. They're about 40 feet high, maybe about 50 feet across. In the case of the south coast, they have a single cannon on top. And on the east coast, they have three cannon on top. And these are spaced along the coast about every 500, 600 metres. And the purpose of these towers is to act as strong points to repel an invasion. So their cannon are intended to fire upon anchored ships offshore who are disembarking soldiers in small boats to land on the beaches. Right. And so their role is either to sink the ships or, if that's not possible, to target the troops in their boats as they're approaching or actually on the beaches themselves. And that's the reason they're fairly close together. So two Martello towers can cross their fire. There are about 74 of them on the south coast, and I think there's about 40 on the east coast. So it's a very substantial investment in coastal defences, after the Royal Navy, of course, as a first line of land defence against this suspected invasion. And these Martello towers, do they mostly exist today? A lot of them have been destroyed, but there are a, a substantial number do survive. You can go and see them. I mean, if you if you walk along the southeast coast between, let's say, Forkston and Hythe and further on towards Eastbourne, you will see them periodically, yes. I think there's about 24 of them left on the south coast. There's about a dozen or so left on the east coast. There's one open at a place called Dimchurch, which is close to Hythe, close to the Kent East Sussex border. And you can actually go in that and see what it was like for the soldiers who were manning it. I believe that uh, one was also converted on a TV programme to be someone's home. So, uh... Yes, there are a few actually that have been converted. And I think it's becoming more of a trend. There's certainly probably about half a dozen that, that have been converted over the years. Well, we've talked obviously about how Britain started preparing for the invasion, the Martello Towers, the work at Dover Castle. And let's also talk about the political work that was going on as well through the periodicals, uh, the information from the government, disinformation, misinformation, maybe even. Josephine, uh, can you describe what was going on in some of the periodicals of the time and also what the general mood was coming out of the government? Well, I mean, the mood was quite sort of defiant. So on the back of all those preparations that Paul has talked about, there was also a concerted effort to get the population on board with the whole idea of this French invasion, which by 1803 was very much a real thing. Just going back very briefly to that period of the Peace of Amiens, you know, that was also a an opportunity for people to go from London to Paris, which they hadn't done for many years. 
And lots of people did go. Some people even went and met Napoleon. And there are some quite funny cartoons of Napoleon having um, audience with these rather staid looking English people. Um, And I think also that period is maybe a time when culturally, a lot of people who had been, say, admirers of Napoleon in the 1790s, from a libertarian perspective, start to see him in a different light. And that cultural shift, that shift of ideas between him being somehow a kind of force for change in society to being this bogeyman, which mm-hmm. he becomes by 1803, it's very much driven by government propaganda. So there's this huge outpouring of pamphlets and handbills and particularly satirical cartoons. I mean, it is the age of the cartoon. So you have people like Gilray and Cruikshank and Rowlandson and lots of others. They're just the sort of three well-known that come out with all these really quite shocking cartoons. So Napoleon is transformed into this tiny little Corsican tyrant. And often in the cartoon, especially in Gilray, he's this very um, dark-skinned, tiny little figure. He's often referred to as the Corsican fairy, standing on people's hands or standing on people's tables. Some of them are very, very shocking. To Napoleon, who himself was a, a master of propaganda and how he controlled his own image and how he controlled the image of his family through high art, so through artists like David and Gerard, he projects this fabulously heroic image. And what the British are coming out with is this fabulously funny image of him as this little Corsican tyrant who has fits about not being able to invade Britain. So at the peak then, some of these cartoons could be about 500 of them printed, which may not seem a lot to us, but it was quite a lot. And they were expensive. So most people saw them by standing outside printmakers' shop windows and looking at them. And they were disseminated or they would pass from hand to hand or just the knowledge of them was passed from hand to hand. You often have Napoleon, the figure of Napoleon, trying to invade. There's a great series of, uh, and I'm sure Paul has seen them, they're quite hilarious, of how the French are going to invade by all these big floating um, rafts. Yeah, Yeah. and or balloons or prophetically by tunnel, which is quite funny to us because we do end up with a tunnel. One of my favourites, and I think which is the absolute peak, Bonaparte as the bogeyman, is one by Rowlandson, which shows Napoleon as a swaddled baby in the arms of a devil. And it's just called The Devil's Darling. And that's all you need to say about it. And these images are powerful and people would have understood them. So that whole propaganda war, it's just a barrage of information. There was obviously a threat, even though it was sent up. And there was also this building of the Royal Military Canal. Paul, you know a bit about this. And I had to say to myself, how does the canal stop an invading army? But um, it did have a key purpose if it were to be used in war, didn't it? Yes, that's right. If you think we were talking about the South Coast Martello Towers stretching from Hythe towards Eastbourne, behind that line, there is something called Romney Marsh, which is a flat area, uh, which 
offers you know a, a, a nice gentle way inland for an army that had actually landed to progress towards london which would have been the target mm. and so what was what happened is that they built a second line of defense roughly between hive and hastings at the inland side of romney marsh and this was intended as a physical barrier if you have an army and the army was intended to be about 167,000 men although it actually never reached that in its camp at Boulogne, but it still exceeded 120,000 men at its maximum. Imagine that amount of soldiers landing in a relatively small area and then trying to make their way inland. They've got to get across this physical barrier, a water-filled canal. And the canal was not just a physical barrier, it was also a defensive barrier. So as well as trying to get across the canal, a difficult thing to do anyway, there are no bridges, you have to make them. There is a concentration of defences both along the canal, which is designed as a series of dog legs, and in those dog legs you have batteries of cannon firing along the canal potentially, plus behind it you have a rampart with defending soldiers, with infantry, and larger forces behind it firing with artillery. So you have a physical barrier and a concentration of defences firing on you while you're trying to get across it. So effectively, it's a stop line, as we, we might think of a, a stop line in the Second World War, for instance. It's a place where you form a second line and you concentrate your defences to stop them, the enemy moving inland. So why didn't the French forces invade Britain in the end? The circumstances were just not right. Basically, what was happening at sea is that the Royal Navy were actually blockading all of the French and Spanish ports. So they were effectively stopping the French Navy getting out of the ports because the French Navy had to get control of the channel, i.e. defeat the Royal Navy, before all these barges that were being built to transport the soldiers could get safely across. And those conditions were never met. And by 1805, they still aren't met and pressure is building up further east and Napoleon needs to take his army to face the Austrians in the east who are beginning to put pressure on French possessions in that direction. And of course, it's finally capped off in November of 1805 by the great victory of Lord Nelson over the combined French and Spanish fleets at Trafalgar. And that effectively, for a while at least, meant that there was no way that the French were gonna get control of the channel. And so the idea was temporarily abandoned and Napoleon took his army elsewhere. Although it's, it's important to say that he had began to move eastwards before Trafalgar happened. And it was this threat of the Austrian army further east that caused him to move. Josephine, we've talked about the um, physical military impact of Napoleonic threat. But how else did Napoleon leave his mark on England? Obviously, you and I walked around the Duke of Wellington's home, Apsley House, on the podcast before. We saw the giant statue of Napoleon at the foot of the spiral staircase there. That's certainly one big example of uh, the Battle of Waterloo and then the gift of a Napoleon's statue being given to the Duke of Wellington after that, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that statue actually is the best monument to Napoleon in this country. I don't think anything really outdoes that colossal statue by Antonio Canova 
it's such a great example of how Napoleon used art as well. Although ultimately he didn't like it. He did commission it, but he didn't like it when it arrived in Paris from Rome. He was really reticent about having it displayed. For those that haven't seen it, it's a giant sort of nearly two meter statue of a naked Napoleon in heroic guise as Mars the peacekeeper. Mm. Now, of course, you know, it's not modelled on Napoleon. It's a very stylized and muscular version of him. The head is probably the closest that it gets to Napoleon. But Canova portrays him as this kind of all-conquering figure. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are really shocked to see that in Apsley House, um, especially at the bottom of a staircase. Uh, people often gasp. As we were, <laughs> as yeah, I was. Yeah, exactly. What's this yeah, doing you're, here? <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone there, Charles. Mm. Most people are shocked by seeing it. But it is, again, just an example of how Napoleon used art as propaganda. So you have all those fabulous paintings of him, you know, the very famous heroic ones of him on horseback, crossing the Alps, in combat, often very uh, stylistically and not very realistically portrayed. But yes, I think the Canova definitely is the biggest and the best in this country. But at Apsley House, you know, we have other things to do with Napoleon. We do have paintings by Lefebvre. We have paintings by Gerard not just of him, but of Empress Josephine, of his brother Joseph Bonaparte, of his sister Pauline Borghese. We also have one of his swords. And it's not unusual to have these things in this country, but I, I think that symbolically that Canova has got to take the biscuit, really. It's a stunning piece of sculpture. I mean, even if it wasn't anything to do with Napoleon, it's still a stunning piece of sculpture. But I think the fact that it's was commissioned by the Emperor Napoleon and that it ended up at the Duke of Wellington's house is just a, you know, it's a fabulous story. Yes. And the funny thing about it, of course, is that for a, a supposedly small man, it's very big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, very symbolic, isn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Are there any other artworks of Napoleon that we can see at non-English heritage sites around the country? Yeah, well, it's not unusual for, especially for country houses back in the 19th century to have pictures of Napoleon. You know, he was admired. So if you're thinking about great houses with Napoleon connections, you could look at Chatsworth, you could look at Petworth, where they have a little sort of corner of one room, which is a sort of Napoleonic shrine with pictures of Waterloo and Vittoria and a painting of Napoleon. The Royal Collection, of course, has lots of really fabulous objects to do with Napoleon. They have many letters and books and prints, but they also have some quite iconic things. They have the his fabulous red cloak, which is kind of modelled on a, a sort of North African Berber fashion. He was said to have worn this kind of cloak in, when he was in Egypt. And that cloak was taken from his carriage after the defeat at Waterloo. You can see that at Windsor. Mm. They also have at Buckingham Palace, it's one of my favourite objects, is a wonderful circular table which he commissioned. And on the top, it has a sève, which is a porcelain top. And it's called the Table of the Great Commanders of Antiquity. And in the centre, it has a picture of one of Napoleon's heroes, which is Alexander the Great. And surrounding that are the heads of other commanders from antiquity. But of course, Napoleon has put himself in there as well. And it's a fabulous thing. And it was given to George the Fourth 
to kind of commemorate the defeat of Napoleon was given to him by Louis XVIII. So there's plenty of places in the country and you'd probably be surprised at how much of Napoleon you can actually find in this country. But I may be a bit prejudiced, but I do think that the Canova at Apsi House is probably the best. And how much of Napoleon was there left after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and his defeat in Belgium, Paul? Because uh, he was uh, very much reduced from the man who climbed the ranks in this lightning mode. He suddenly was cut down, wasn't he, by this final act of coalition? Yes, indeed. I suppose we, in our narrative, had, had neglected to complete his rise to power in 1799, where he basically is part of a coup which takes over the French Republican government. And he becomes first consul, in other words, the, the most important part of a new government. And then eventually his power grows that, such that he declares himself emperor in 1804. So the Republican project had been transformed by him into an imperial one, effectively. It's a bit of a paradox, really, isn't it? Yeah. But that, that underlies the man. So yes, he, he's brought law in 1815 and he finds himself in exile, this time a long, long, long way from home in the South Atlantic on St. Helena, a tiny little island you know, which is a, a British possession uh, and, you know, a good thousand miles from anywhere, remotely civilised. So it's it's a very lonely existence for, uh, for a man. He was a prisoner, wasn't he? He was a prisoner, yeah. And for, for a man of such ambition and such achievement with such a busy, clever mind, it must have been an awful existence, that's for sure. His previous exile was on Elba, wasn't it? The Isle of Elba? That's, that's correct, yeah. Whereabouts is that one? Uh, that's in the Mediterranean. He's been defeated finally by the Sixth Coalition of the European powers, including Britain, Russia, Prussia and Austria, etc. And he was then exiled to Elba. He wasn't there for very long. He made his escape, got back to France and was welcomed back by the army and the people. And that begins this period which we call the Hundred Days, which actually ended in the Battle of Waterloo. So this was a, a last-minute gamble to reassert himself in Europe and to make French the dominant power once again. But it failed at Waterloo, and that's when he was exiled again to the island of St Helena. And effectively became a British prisoner. That's, that's correct, yeah. Is this where he dies as well? Yes, he died there in 1821, six years later. Not long afterwards then, really? No, And he no. was quite young, wasn't he, still? Well, he was born in 1769. What is he, 40... 51. 51, sorry. Yeah, 51 years old. They think it was stomach cancer. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josephine, but I think that's what they think he died of. Yeah, I think that's correct. He had stomach ulcers and I think we would interpret that now as stomach cancer. I mean, of course, there were lots of conspiracy theories about, you know, the British had kind of instigated his death or or the fact of of holding him on St. Helena had hastened his death. I mean, it was a place that he hated he really hated and he hated that house it, it was the house called longwood yeah. and it was damp and it was it wasn't a very nice place but actually if you look at it now it looks quite nice so you can't quite understand <laughs> what he was complaining about because the interiors don't look too bad but i think the interesting thing about saint helena is that it was a place that the duke of wellington knew because the duke of wellington had stopped off at saint helena on his way back from india And it was one of the choices that came up, you know, because there's always the great question about why wasn't he executed after Waterloo? And certainly there were some corners of that 
victorious coalition that wanted to see him executed, but the British didn't. Now, the thing about St. Helena is that when you're down by the seaside at the coast, it's not too bad. But where he was up in the hills, mm. there's a kind of constant cloud cover. So you can imagine this very gloomy existence. But I think the other interesting thing about St. Helena is that it really does add to this very sort of romantic myth about Napoleon. As Lord Byron commented about his sort of sad demise on this island, you know, and very much that romantic figure in the way of not the modern day version of romantic, but the romantic period that he was living in and the kind of flawed genius alone at the end and, you know, mm. sort of died in exile. It, it did very much add to the Napoleonic myth. And also, just to go back to the sort of like objects surrounding him, one of the things that happened the day after he died was that his physician took an impression of his dead face to create a death mask. Oh, right. um, they had a little bit of a problem with it and it didn't sort of turn out quite correctly. And they had to sort of reconstruct it a little bit from a drawing that had been done on his deathbed. But anyway, there were these plaster death masks, you know, which still mm. survive. I think the British Museum have got one. There's several places in France that have them. And at Apsi House, we have a bronze one that would have been made from a, an impression, but we've got a bronze one. And of course, you know, the death mask and that whole story about his death, again, just adds to the myth. And then bizarrely, as we know, he, his body was returned to France. Uh, to France, yeah, to be buried at Les Invalides. But what's really weird about the whole thing is the kind of adoration of these death masks and especially Napoleon's death masks and what happens to him after his death. You know, it, it does add to the legend of the man. Why was he brought back to France, his body? Because you'd think that uh, as a prisoner of the British, he would just be buried and stay on St. Helena. Why did the British allow uh, the body to be taken back to France? Well, he'd expressed a wish yeah. to be buried in Paris. Okay. Uh, and that, that request was initially refused by the British government at the time. And also by the Bourbon monarchy that Louis XVIII didn't want it either, although he was a bit noncommittal. I suppose his attitude was that it wasn't the right time politically for Napoleon to come back from St. Helena in the 1820s. However, in 1840, almost 20 years later, a request was made to the British government and they approved it. I suppose it was no longer such a delicate political issue. But as far as the French were concerned at the time, I, I think it was a political act. I think it was intended to boost the reputation of what was regarded as a very ordinary, mediocre government. Yeah, uh, and they were, they were attempting, I suppose, to ride on the myth, to ride on the nostalgia for the, the former great days of France. Hmm. And it latched on to this growing positivity, this growing myth of Napoleon's public memory. He's almost becoming a semi-mythical Napoleon who had defended the revolution and transformed its ideals into everyday life. Whereas, in fact, in many ways, he wasn't that at all. I think it was a political act, but I don't think it reflected well on the government at the time. I don't think it did them any good. But in actual fact, it was very popular with the people. We've just touched on it there in that answer, but I think Napoleon's lasting impact on France and elsewhere is this mythical idea of a man who was repurposed. His myth was repurposed after death as being a symbol of la république sort of thing, wasn't it? 
Yes, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, but his impact, his long-standing impact, it's a difficult one to deal with. I mean, there are some things which were very negative. The scale of the destruction, you know, the scale of his ambition and the destruction it caused and the amount of death it caused was quite incredible, quite enormous. So that's something that we often forget. So his legacy, his impact in France and everywhere, I think is mixed. I think it's compromised today. Certainly some things that he did had a lasting impact, I think. Let's take his military impact first. I mean, he reformed the army by perfecting a new doctrinal approach to the organization of the army and how it fought. And although this was being thought about at the time by other people, he perfected it. And it was actually, with a small r, revolutionary. It was called the core system. And in this system, he divided the army into smaller groups called corps mm. of between 10 and 50,000 soldiers, usually 20 to 30,000, in fact. And these corps were composed of all branches of the army, infantry, cavalry, artillery, engineers, support troops. And they were in themselves self-dependent, mobile, flexible, and self-supporting. And their commanders were given a large degree within an overall strategy to fight independently. They also moved in a different way. Because they were smaller groups, they were broken down into smaller groups and on the move in a campaign, they would move actually in battalion formations of about a thousand soldiers. And each corps would move independently of the other corps several miles apart. And this effectively meant that each battalion could live at least in part off the land, whereas the whole army couldn't. It could move much more rapidly than an army in one huge body. It kept the army of the enemy guessing of the army's objectives. And then finally, it was able to concentrate quickly once the enemy was located. And it was able to pick the engagement with the enemy on its own terms because it was so dispersed. We could then engage and, and, and concentrate quickly. And actually that core system underpins all modern armies as does the Napoleonic concept of rapid warfare. Mm. So his army reforms and the way he maneuvered and organized the army were actually revolutionary. Uh, and the effects are still with us today. But as Josephine said at the beginning, he did make mistakes and he did get overconfident and he did lose sometimes. But he used a system that was highly effective when it was properly deployed. What are your final thoughts, Josephine, on um, Napoleon's lasting legacy in France and Britain? Well, I think it's enormous. And I think whichever way you come down for or against Napoleon, because I think that is still very much a discussion that academics have. If you read biographies that have been published in the past 10 years, they can contain very differing views and people can still argue about the importance of Napoleon, what he achieved, how he achieved it. So to be honest, I think that's his impact I think the, he, we're still talking about him. We're doing a podcast about him today. That is his impact. He is, however, even if you don't like him, he's a towering figure in European history. And as Paul said, you know, quite rightly, many things that he devised militarily and in the civil part of life in France are still there today and are a direct legacy of Napoleon. So I think that he is somebody with a huge historical impact in many, many ways and a very impressive character. 
probably not someone you would personally like, maybe. But anyway, a very, very impressive figure in history. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. There's more on Napoleon's impact in the May 2021 edition of the English Heritage Members magazine. Next week, we take a more peaceful look at historic games enjoyed at country houses. Thanks for listening. See you next time.